Hello and welcome everyone. My name is Molly Rowan Leach and I am co-hosting the Evolutionary Lawyers series every Monday at 8 a.m. Pacific, excluding holiday times, with the incredible J. Kim Wright, who is the founder of Cutting Edge Law and an author of the ABA best-selling book, Lawyers as Peacemakers. This archive, specifically today, is from our time with Jeff Brown. Um, that would be the date of December 5th, 2011. And for more information about the Evolutionary Lawyers series that we're hosting through February of 2012, please go to cuttingedgelaw.com. You can also find archives and further information about our upcoming guests and um, also pertinent in, and relevant information about your own practice. You can also go to my website, which is mollyrowanpresents.com for other similar dialogue series, as well as information about this one. So without further ado, here's J. Kim Wright interviewing Jeff Brown with our group gathered. Good morning. Welcome, everyone. Uh, this is Kim Wright of Cutting Edge Law and my co-host, Molly Rowan Leach of Molly Rowan Presents. And we're glad you're here for our Evolutionary Lawyers Teleseries. Uh, Molly, can you tell people how to participate and let them hear you first? Yes, thank you. Good morning, everyone, and welcome. And thank you, Kim. Um, this morning, as every Monday, um, we will have moments during the call where we'd love to invite your participation and questions. And so just keep in mind that pressing 1 on your telephone keypad is how we um, know to call on you and invite you into the conversation. And also, you might want to know that you can find all the audio archives. We're, we're going to catch those up. Sharif Abdullah's audio archive had a little bit of a technical difficulty. So we're going to be reposting that on Kim's um, cuttingedgelaw.com website. You can access all the audio from every Monday's call there, as well as at mollyrowanpresents.com. So thank you so much everyone for being here this morning with us. And Kim, back to you. Well, thanks Molly. I'll also mention that uh, Molly's son is home with her today and um, she's going to be on mute a lot. And, um, and so um, we're, uh, we're sending David some healing energy. So our guest today is Jeff Brown. And uh, Jeff is the author of Soul Shaping. And if you read his bio, you know that he did all the right things to become a lawyer and was on that fast track. And then he, um, he shifted gears. And so um, Jeff, I'm going to ask you to say more about your story. Uh, so I'm not going to um, say the parts I know. and um, and. We're just going to have a great conversation here. So welcome. Um, I, w I don't know where to begin. I, uh, I had a call to practice as a trial lawyer, as an adolescent living in my insane family. I used to see this, this guy, Eddie Greenspan, who's a famous Canadian criminal lawyer in the 70s and 80s on television, and I felt called to him. You know, I used to say, I'm going to work with that guy one day. And you know, no one paid any attention. Nobody really emphasized an academic or intellectual track in my family. But it felt true for me that this guy was part of my template of possibility for my lifetime. And, um, and then in my early 20s, somehow I got into law school at University of Toronto. I was certain that I was going to become a criminal trial lawyer like him. Um, and uh, ended up articling for him, Kennedy article for a year. And Eddie became my principal for a 12-month uh, insane period. Um, I did a high-level murder trial with him, a police officer that shot and killed a kid uh, who was driving a stolen car, shot him in the back of the head. And very politicized trial, a lot of energy and hype around it. And, uh, and that became my experience, my primary experience of being a trial lawyer as a student. I wrote all the crosses. So, and Jeff? Yeah. If I can interrupt you, you said you felt a calling to the law. Yeah. And, and you know, say more about that. Where, did, um, where do you think that was coming from? Was mm -hmm. that something that was sort of, in, you know, um, coming from the inside of you, or was it um, trying to prove something? Or, mm. I mean, 
I mean, I think it was a combination of uh, a few things. The, the way that I endured my childhood environment was uh, by protecting myself. So defense law as a way of being was very familiar to me, just as a construct from my interactive experience. It was also, I believe, archetypally true. Um, and, you know, I was a real pragmatic person and not particularly esoteric. I'm far more esoteric now in my understanding of things. And it just seemed so clear to me that it was a pathway that lived inside of me from birth, almost as though I'd been a trial lawyer at a previous time. When I first walked into a court with Eddie, I felt like I'd been there forever. It felt completely familiar to me. It felt deeply natural. It felt like an essential step on my journey, wherever my journey was going to lead. And so I think it was some combination of um, just childhood imprinting and some carry forward, something that came in with me in this lifetime, some path that had to be actualized. Yeah. So, so go on with, with, with your story. What happened? Um, I loved it. Obviously, that's I mean, not what you're doing. Okay. Yeah, and, yeah. No, I loved it. I mean, I, I, my year with Eddie. I mean, I, I think my average docket for the first eight months was 121 hours a week. Literally, I was sleeping two or three hours a night, and I didn't care. I fell asleep on the highway twice. I didn't care. I absolutely had to do this with him. I, I loved writing crosses. I loved figuring out. I loved the dance of the courtroom. I love trying to figure out ways and angles to create um, a good defense. I was just absolutely and utterly engaged. I wasn't one of those people that was pushed into law by his Jewish grandmother. You know, my Jewish grandmother said, do whatever you want. I didn't get pressure on that level. I just loved it. Um, and then after I was finished this year and drained and went to Turkey and on a vacation before coming back to do the bar admission course, we had a four-month bar admission course then after articles, um, I just had a transformative experience. I mean, I'd had like a lot of openings before that that I'd pushed away in order to deal with the grit of the articling year, but something else was taking up space inside of me, um, another pathway. And it wasn't clear to me exactly what that pathway was, but it was clear that the message was not to do trial law. Um, and I literally identified parts of myself in dialogue, the warrior part, which was the part that was pushing me to do trial law, and another part that I actually named Little Missy that was like a quiet, esoteric part that was uh, conveying another direction for me. Um, and these parts took up space inside of me. You know, I had what I call the spiritual emergency in the book where I really had to make a choice. Because I knew that if I signed on the dotted line, I had a bunch of guys we were going to rent an office, I was ready to rock. I knew if I did it at that time, at that stage of my development, I would have been lost to trial law forever. You know, I, I just I wouldn't have had enough space in that reality to explore other parts of me. So for whatever reason, at the end of that process, at the end of the bar admission course, after being called to the bar, I stepped back. And I gave myself a couple of years to go and explore other ways of being. Um, and by the time I reached the end of that stage, um, I, I then did go and rent an office because that still that voice was inside of me, but it was over for me. You know, I had done a workshop at the Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, an emotional healing workshop, where I, it just became so clear to me that my, I had to move from the focus on the presumption of innocence in my work to the presumption of essence, and that really I had another path to walk. And, and so I went, I remember going up north and spending a few days with it and walking into it, and it was just the decision was made that, I had to take all of this energy and this focus and move it in another direction. Yeah. I want to just stop and, and, and kind of go back to the um, yeah, one of the things about you is that you um, you you love to uh, create ways of saying things that um, kind of makes you make you stop. So uh, would, would you say that again? The presumption of innocence. Yeah, I mean, I was I was all about defense law, so of course the presumption of innocence was all, I was all about that. And you know, I come from a Jewish background. I have defense in my bones. It was really so. I've always seen the world in that humanistic way, where I wasn't so much interested in why people did the act. I was always interested in, in whether they did the act. I was always interested in why they did it. I was always interested in the source spring. Um, but something shifted in me. I did this holotropic breathwork at Omega where I was witnessing all of these seemingly functional, successful, and some of them were lawyered people in this room who were doing deep breath work and completely opening to the stuff that lived below their adaptations and disguises, that lived below their sales mask or their law mask or whatever mask they wore to get through life. And it was so profound, this experience, that I knew that I could never take the courtroom game seriously again. 
And it wasn't that there wasn't amazing and isn't amazing work to do to transform that environment. I just knew it wasn't my path anymore. And really, I just started to see everybody in more soulful terms. I wasn't so pragmatic anymore. It was like I wanted to get to the authentic face below the mask self um, in my work and as a way of being. And I knew that I couldn't do that in trial law. I mean, I could do it a little bit by exposing the liar and trying to bring honesty into the environment, but it wasn't really the right environment for me because that structure always felt too archaic. And like it just wasn't going to be amenable to that level of source analysis, trying to understand what was really happening. And um, yeah, so really I think that my work in the world now is more about making that presumption of essence. That is seeing the being as a soulful being before focusing on the personality, the adaptations, and the disguises. Well, and um, tell everybody uh, more about your work now. Um, you know, plug your book. Soul Shaping, you know, make yeah. sure everybody knows how to find it. Yeah, the website is soulshaping.com, and the book is really my journey. It's really, you know, and it's 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 called Soul Shaping, but it's really primarily, I think, a more practical, down-to-earth book uh, about the path and the steps that we have to take to clear the emotional debris so that we can clarify our path and purpose. And uh, apart from that, I'm I'm filmmaking. I'm doing a film called Carmageddon that I've been worth just finishing a film about my connection to this crazy, interesting, brilliant um, guru named Bhagavan Das, who was part of the Be Here Now scene in the early 70s with Ram Das, and, um, and just started a little online soul-shaping university. I have a Finding Sacred Purpose course there, and, and that's getting downloaded quite frequently. And, and I'm uh, writing new books and you know writing on Facebook a lot of status, and I have a new quotes book that will be coming out soon, and working on a grounded spirituality model and all that. I'm doing, I'm on fire, you know. I was on fire with law, but it, it wasn't, it was almost like it was a sequence that was completed. It was like I loved it, and it was like I was supposed to be there for just that period of time, and then I was supposed to shed that path and do something different with my energy, and, and that's pretty much what's happened. And do you see what you're doing now in any way related to that past in, in law, or was it really a stop change, start something new? Uh, I think that legal training, uh, the experience with Eddie gave me so much confidence in my mind. You know, it was such a powerful... Uh, at the end of that trial, I, I, I spent four days and nights writing a 167-page jury address. My brain went to a place that I didn't think it could go. And, and a confidence came as a result of that experience. It was profound. And, and so I think that carries forward. Um, I think the sharpness, in, in the intellectual sharpness, certainly carries forward, both in the writing and presenting the work in the world, so that it doesn't come through as real goofy. Um, and I think the interesting thing about the journey, and I wrote a lot about this in the book, is that I, for the longest time, thought that I had to get away from the warrior self, the trial warrior self, that part of my personality, the salesman, the huckster, um, in order to find my path. And, you know, and, and to an extent, I had to dissociate from it or push it away so I could explore a more subtle or surrendered path. But, of course, what I realized in writing Soul Shaping and running a business and all the things that I had to do to bring that book through, that my warrior was with me every step of the way, you know, that that part of myself is still deeply with me. And now that I'm out in the world and dealing with a lot of positive and a lot of negative transference to my writing, um, I have the boundaried warrior with me all the time. You know, I feel more like a lawyer now than I did five years ago, that's for sure. And I still think that at the age of 80, God, God willing I live that long and have finished this book writing journey, I will go back into trial law for the rest of my days. <laughs> at the age of 80? Absolutely. I got a whole list well, of things to do. Well, uh, Jeff, I'm not sure that there will be much trial law left by then. We'll, um. we'll see. I'm not so sure about that, Kim, but we'll see about that. I think that system's going to hold out for a lot longer than you think. Uh, no, I, I think the system has some really good purposes. I just think that there are a lot of other tools in our toolboxes. Yeah, I mean, it's a perfect reflection of a survivalist structure, you know. We're crossing a bridge individually and as a culture from survivalism to authenticity. And I, I've often just thought that the criminal law environment in particular, the mechanism itself is so essential at this stage of development that I feel like it's the, one of the last systems that it's actually going to change. So I, w I want to talk more with you about that. And I want to uh, 
let everybody know um, once again that if you want to uh, make a comment, ask a question, um, or jump in here in the conversation, uh, push one on your keypad, and we will bring you in and uh, and uh, have this be more interactive. So, um, Jeff, say more about what you see about moving from survival. I'm, I'm intrigued by that. Survivalists. Well, I just kind of see I, I see the whole world that way. I mean, I really feel as though we're coming from an animalism or survivalism structure. And so the paternalistic male, the egoic male, the warrior male, the, all of that stuff is linked to something quite legitimate. You know, I wrote these pieces, the apologies to the divine feminine and apologies to the sacred masculine and the awakening man that were really about trying to understand for me and trying to clarify a, a vision of possibility for humankind. Where are we going next? How are we going to get there? Because there's so much dissing of the ego and there's so much dissing of paternalism and there's so much dissing of the male uh, adversarials, all those structures. And to me, they were birthed in a survivalist reality. They were, they were absolutely necessary evils as part of the development of the human consciousness. And it's just sociologically essential. And, but I think that, that we're at the beginning of a shift. You know, there's a lot of talk like we're in the heart of this radical shift. I don't really believe that's true. That feels ungrounded to me. I feel as though there are just little openings. And, and these openings are very meaningful openings. And it's a very different world. If you can imagine a world where we're defining who we are based fundamentally on something authentic, based on the idea that each of us, for example, has an identifiable purpose or callings or even just gifts that we're here to manifest, as opposed to a world where we define and shape who we are just based on survival, where our personality, so you become the sales personality because that's how you get food on the table. You know, you become the lawyer personality because that's how you get through life. And it's a different question when you ask the question of who are you really. Right, And I think that we're beginning to embark on that journey, that kind of inquiry, and try to find a way slowly to weave it into our social institutions. So I imagine one day a world where, you're right, trial law as we know it will fade. What will what, replace it, I don't know. It may be more of a, of a humanistic inquiry or dialogue into what happened in a situation, what sourced it, where did it come from, something like that. I'm not exactly sure how that would look, but we won't be fighting at each other in the same way. That won't be the only way we try to find the answers. And and I think that's the journey we're all on. I, I think, you know, the whole Occupy movement is just a little indication of that. We've had enough with these structures. They're not satisfying us anymore. And this is as true in the legal profession as it is in every other. Well, and uh, what I've, I, I don't know what it's going to look like either. It's yeah. actually part of the excitement of the work that I do is that it's a discovery process, and when I find people that I think have a piece of it, then I want I want to know more about them. I want to support them, and I want to help uh, move that conversation forward. We may we may not be doing any of these things uh, eventually, but right. um, you know. But I, I'm with you. I, th I think that we're going to still have a court system, and you know, there are going to be people who don't. I mean, maybe this is. I feel like this is grounded rather than um, pessimistic. We're going to have people who don't want to take responsibility for something. They don't want to be accountable for something that they've done that, um, or they're, they're doing something that's harming other people that yeah. they don't see as harming them. And we're going to need a system for handling that. Absolutely. And Absolutely. I mean, I think it's hard in our stage of consciousness to envision the world, you know, it's like when you're living in the world as it is, it's sometimes it's difficult to imagine the world as it ought to be. You know, it, it really is. And, but, but I do think we will, I'm, I'm a ridiculous optimist in the heart of my groundedness. And I do believe we will reach a stage uh, where we're going to all be taking responsibility. It may be 20,000 years from now. That's the problem. You know, it's, it's not going to happen anytime soon. And I'm thankful, you know, knowing I have a small home improvements business that helps to fund all of this. And, you know, I'm in court suing in small claims, you know, probably once every two weeks and seeing the level of trickery that I have to deal with on the other end of it, um, trying to get paid in a business that I own is, you know, I can't imagine that shifting very quickly. It's going to take some time. And I'm thankful we have this system that we have it. But I think we can start softening the edges of it, you know, and I think that's what you're doing. You're inviting other ways of operating in the system so that those who are willing, the small few that are willing, can start to create new paradigms. Fantastic. Jim and Jeff, we have a question. 
Yeah, um, Gary, um, do you want to jump in here and uh, join this conversation? I, I, I do. Thank you very much. Uh, there are a couple of reactions. One is to the general theme of how courts are going, but more interested in, in the warrior. I'm just sure whether the other archetypes, and I apologize, I haven't had a chance but do you the archetypes besides your warrior archetype, the lover, the king, the magician, part of your gestalt, part of your I only heard part of that question. Kim, could you repeat that to me? Yeah, I, it, Gary, you were breaking up, but I think you were... Um, I, I, he was asking if there are other archetypes, right? Uh, yeah, if I identify yeah. others as part of kind of my schemata apart from the warrior. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I feel fundamentally that my movement and there were so many early indications of this, was you know, from a malevolent, somewhat malevolent or edgy warrior to a more be benevolent warrior. And, and I think the healer um, archetype feels most identifiable to me. You know? Not really a soft-touch healer, really more a healer that's grounded in the world and um, trying to make things happen. But th that, those really, I think, warrior and healer are my primary identifications and and I and I think really blending the two feels really right to me so I feel in the writing now you know when I wrote for example apologies to the divine feminine I felt benevolent in my intentionality but I felt really rooted in the um, in the warrior self in the in the um, not so much the aggressive self but the assertive self and so yeah yeah, I mean, I've gone through Carolyn Meese's list, and I had like others that felt somewhat identifiable, but those were the primary two. What about you? Well, I currently, I mean, aside from my practice of law, which is half litigation and, and corporate counsel and, and litigation, what sustains me as, as I move through life after 32 years of system involved in transformation mostly right now through an organization called MDI, where we do a legacy probably familiar with Robert Moore and Douglas Gillette's book uh, by that name. And it's really about shaping men in their masculine. My perception is a body dominated by boy, boy psychology, and it shows all the way up into the national leader level. The world is being run by boys as opposed to a particular right. point of view, but it leans heavily on, on having men those archetypes as a reference point. The supposition being that it's innate in, in, in our hard wiring, not being trained to access it, not being trained to this behavior in the moment, in addition to those archetypes, and choose powerfully productive, creative, and empowering for other people as a selfish and. and Gary, I think what you're saying is probably. I, I, um, I think what you're saying is probably really great, and we're getting, um, I'm, at least on my end, I'm, I'm getting break up, and I'm. Yeah. Um, I'm loving what I'm. I'm loving the dialogue. Does, Gary, do you have another phone to call in on? Because I, I, I'd love to participate in this dialogue. Yeah, um, I'm not sure if I call in on myself right now. I'm using my landline. Take it. I'm oh. still breaking up. Oh. You're, you are. Um, hmm. Okay. All right. Let me try my cell. That might be better. Um, I'll use the same coordinates and, and get back in. But continue on. Thank you. You know, I, I mean, it's. I almost wish we had. Uh, I had written a piece called "The Awakening Man: A Portrait of Possibility for Humankind," and you know, I felt. I almost wish we pulled that up and worked from a couple of the sections there in dialogue about it, because I think a lot of this does come down to this question of, you know, as I was writing the piece, it was like trying to understand what is the healthy masculine, you know, and of course, what is the healthy court structure? All this stuff is connected, and so what is the healthy masculine or the healthy warrior? Let's say because it doesn't obviously have to be a man in a courtroom. You know, what does that look like? You know, what, is, what do we bring forward from prior generations that's um, inclusive and that's um, sustainable and that's worthwhile, and what do we disregard? Like, what are we evolving in the direction of? Because it's inextricably linked to the question of 
how are we going to manage and, and create a court structure that reflects it? You know. Uh, we have uh, Sean's hand is up, uh, so we can call on Sean, and um, then when Gary comes back, we'll um, we'll let him continue. Also, Sean. Yeah. Um my hand was up because I couldn't hear Gary he kept cutting out and I was getting frustrated by missing a lot of the important yeah. points that he was making. So I was just trying to, nobody seemed to be stopping it. So I was, I just, that's why I raised my hand. Yeah. I mean, I know I, I wasn't stopping because I was thinking maybe it was only me. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> I do that when people are not saying anything and then, yeah. Uh, anyway, so. That's interesting. Right, yeah. right, right, right. Yeah. <laughs> I don't have a question yet, but I'm sure I will. Cool. Okay. All right. So, um, I, I see, Gary, you came back on. If you want to um, push your one key again, then we'll be able to call on you. And there. Yeah. Can you Calling. hear me? Yep. Am I any clearer on myself? So I far, you're so clear so to far. me. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, I'll stay on my cell phone. Um, <laughs> so, Gary, so if you know. could repeat some of what you said, because it, it was breaking up, and there, uh, you know, uh, it, I could tell that it was uh, something that was worth hearing, but not, um, but not quite what you were saying. Okay. Uh, and let me know again if. if if I start to break up, um, I mean, basically the, the the question that I had for for Jeff was, you know, how he integrates uh, the archetypes in, into his book in terms of how we're going to transform society. And and my basic uh, uh, theme was that we're training men um, through one of the organizations outside of law to embrace the mature masculine as represented by the four major archetypes of king, warrior, magician, and lover. And I heard Jeff talking about warrior, and I, that's where my curiosity came about um, how to integrate the other archetypes because um, they each had different roles and are all present. And my concern was that having practiced for 32 years uh, in, in the system um, and, and also as a social observer, my dominant sense of the culture I live in is it's dominated by what I call boy psychology. It's an mm -hmm. immature, I mean, chronologically, the men that we're talking about, you know, they're in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, but who I see us being led by and who we're voting for are, are immature boy psych psychology types. And in order to transform any social system, whether it be the law or, or society at large, one of the things I identify as missing is the mature masculine, the mature masculine that's productive, creative, and empowering, um, both for himself and all those in his families, in his communities, and through his career, and, and how to go about reshaping that. And I don't see that being done, quite frankly, within law. Um, for me, I spend a lot of my so-called free time uh, leading training programs for men of all ages and all walks to introduce them to the possibility that they have a choice every moment whether they're going to identify with the mature masculine and we use the archetypes as anchors, as reference points, just to slow them down long enough to take a look at yeah. how they're being in the world. Beautiful. And, you know, and, and when I look at the legal system, I see it playing less of a role only because of the economics. I'm watching the emergence of, of um, arbitration you know, rent-to-judge, private courts uh, becoming more and more dominant. You're right, there will always be a place for the court system because of the criminal law. But, but if I look at it from the commercial, corporate point of view, I see it having a shrinking influence. Now the question is, as this thing becomes privatized, in essence, how do we shape that? Most of the focus in the early years of my career was how do I change the system from within? And I'm one of those long-haired hippies who's big concern was being co-opted by God, God bless you. <laughs> if I stayed in it too long, and truth is, I mean, uh, as much as it doesn't look good to admit it, I have been co-opted to a large degree because I accept 
you know, that the rules are, are intractable and, and only change at the speed of a glacier. Uh, so for me, the, the question is hitting balance. And I'm, I'm interested, as opposed to leaving law, which I've thought about more times than I care to admit, you know, how to hit a balance to do the work that needs to be done. Uh, and my answer is do it outside of law. I, I still haven't found a good way to do it in law. Anyway, those are some of the comments that I was breaking up on. And uh, uh, the only, uh, only footnote to that was I want to make sure, Jeff, that you are familiar with the uh, Gillette and Moore book uh, on the archetypes, King, Warrior, Magician, Lover. I assume if you read Carolyn Mace, you probably stumbled onto Moore and Gillette. But in case you haven't, yeah. it, deals, it, it deals pretty much exclusively with the mature masculine and how we move men in that direction. Yeah. Thank you. You know, it's it's an interesting. I don't uh, have many thoughts at all on the whole privatization issue, but I, I know that when I was putting together this Awakening Man piece, and I and I have an intention to start and develop an Awakening Men's movement and dialogue around that. And that one of the problems I found with the piece, I was so shocked to find that there weren't pieces written about it, and there weren't blogs out there asking this question. It was like when I, I wrote a piece called The Apologies to the Divine Feminine where it was, seemed quite easy for me to identify ways in which men had something to apologize for. It was just, I, I knew it in my own bones. It was clear to me. But as time, as things unfolded, I really recognized I didn't have a clarified vision of what direction to walk towards. Like I knew what wasn't okay, but I knew didn't really know what was. And I mean, I'm interested in their view or vision of the mature masculine because this is, you know, what is the mature masculine? You know, what does the mature masculine retain and bring forward from, you know, the men of yore? And, and what do we lose along the way? You know, I mean, this is, seems to me one of the most important questions men have to sit down together and ask so that we know what we're striving for, you know. Well, and, um, this is Kim. I'll... Um also respond a little bit, Gary, in that I don't think there's anything wrong with saying that you're going to do that kind of work outside the law, but I do see a lot of examples of it going on inside the law. And, um, and it, in some ways, it's much easier to work with people who are not lawyers in uh, a lot of these ideas because the system is so solid. I, I use the image of the courthouse. We've put together the bricks of the courthouse um, in the, or in the court system in the same way we build a courthouse and we think that they're really, really solid, but they're really Legos. And, uh, and, we can, and we can pop them into different configurations. I don't know if the privatizing of the court system is part of um, the way that we're actually going to change things um, or if that's just more uh, more of the same thing that we're trying to transform because we don't we don't necessarily know where we're going. We don't have the model of what the entire system is going to look like. But I just see these little pieces growing up. Some of them are growing up inside the system. Some are growing up outside of the system. And um, and, um, and it, it, for me, it's a very exciting time um, to be you know popping those Legos apart and and reconfiguring reconfiguring them in different ways um, to see uh, where we're going to end up. So I'll remind everybody that if you press 1, uh, you are raising your hand and you can uh, jump into this conversation. I mean, I'm interested, Kim, in, like, in terms of the people you're encountering and the listeners on the show and, you know, what do you find that most people who came to law came to law because they felt it was a calling? that it was some kind of a sacred purpose? Or, or, or was it more often pragmatic? I, I think that for most of the people I talked to, there was a calling. Yeah. And that um, there's actually there's a study um, that says that um, lawyers, you know, law students coming in are normal people, except perhaps a little idealistic. Um, and by the second year of their um, second, um, the second semester of their second year, they um, have lost a lot of that sense of calling and have have shifted to looking for um, extrinsic uh, rewards rather than the intrinsic. But I think that part of them is still there, and that um, and that's part of the recovery um, that happens after law school. Now, if we're focused on the uh, 
only the mind. There's nothing wrong with developing our minds. We all have very good minds. Let's develop them to uh, be very, very good thinkers. But that's just a piece of us, and we have to go back and we have to recover the other pieces or we have to find ways to honor those other pieces while we're in law school so that we can still be whole human beings. You know, it's interesting. I remember, like, around the time I was articling, so we were all just, like, hungry to prove ourselves. You know, Ram Dass has that saying, you have to become something before you become nothing, you know. And it was like we were just becoming something. So we really were saturated in that. And and I think even then some of us were retaining our ultimate vision that we had going into it. But, But many of us weren't. We were just really lost in it. But encountering people I went to law school with now so many years later, now I guess 18 to 19 years later, they feel much more similar now to the way they were when I first encountered them. You know, a little more calmer and settled in themselves and not um, as obviously lawyers. (laughs) They they just don't talk like that all the time. and, but I, it makes some sense in those early years that you, you're becoming that thing, so you really have to completely absorb it. You were well, we, have, we have a question out there, by the way, Jim okay. and Jeff. All right. Sean. Um, yeah, let, I'll finish this, and then we'll bring Sean in. I'll, um, I, I was crossing Texas, and I got off the interstate and walked up to a barbecue stand. And the guy, I mean, this was like a few weeks ago, and I haven't been practicing uh, in a courtroom for a long time. And I was in my jeans, um, and I walked up to the window, and the guy said, are you here to ser- serve divorce papers? And, I, and it, was, it was shocking. It was like, like I, w- I am so much the divorce lawyer that even in that setting, he somehow got it. Okay, Sean. Um, So so you asked the question um, about uh, how do lawyers end up becoming lawyers? Is it a calling? Um, I went to law school in 91 um, because I wanted to become a mediator. Uh, Both my parents were attorneys. uh, They practiced employment law. And so for, there was a time, if you asked me what I wanted to do, I wasn't sure. I, you know, I was kind of all over the place. But if you asked me what I didn't want to do, being a lawyer was the first thing out of my mouth. Um, and then I learned about mediation. And uh, so, I, yeah, I'm, I'm probably one of the only uh, people that went to law school to become a mediator. And for the first 13 years of my practice, did that inside of companies um, until I made a transition to having a full-time. And actually, in fact, I wasn't really even practicing law. Um, thankfully, I kept my uh, my bar uh, membership inactive uh, because four and a half years ago, I decided to start an estate planning practice. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, for me, it's still a calling. The The purpose of my law practice, um, and it's something I stated uh, started publicly expressing a year ago, um, is to help our clients express love for the people that are most important to them. Nice. And, um, and it's just cra- cra- crazy. I mean, I, I equate these things, but it's not one of those that's an obvious cause and effect. About a year ago, I was having a hard time in my practice considering leaving my practice and maybe going to work for a law firm, which I did not want to do. Um, and then it was about a year ago I started expressing that purpose publicly everywhere I went, a lot of marketing things. Uh, it's on my website. Um, I had, I, I'm going to end this year 60% ahead of where I was last year. Um, and I attribute that growth not just to all the marketing stuff that I'm doing, but that people are resonating with that particular purpose, yep. and they want to refer people to that. Yeah, they're trusting your intentionality, right? Yeah. Well, and I isn't mean, it funny that, um, like, the lawyer, I, I see a lot of people who have, have done things like that and have those kinds of stories. Um, and yet that, that lawyer analytical part of us resists talking about what we do as love. Yeah, I mean, I'll tell you, I, I was scared. I, I, the fir- I, I mean, I remember the first time I was in a, in a meeting. It was like a boardroom-type setting, and it was one of those kind of high-profile professional development networking groups, right? So there were accountants in there, and there were financial advisors and other attorneys. And I'm about three-quarters of the way of the room around, 
uh, around the room and people start introducing themselves. And I'm sitting there thinking, do I do the traditional, hi, I'm Sean Mason, I'm an estate planning attorney here in Santa Barbara, or do I say my purpose? And I had a lot of time to think about it. And I decided, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm just going to do it. I, mean, I mustered up the courage to do it. And it was interesting because the guy leading the group kind of stopped and said, you know, I've heard a lot of, of estate planning attorneys introduce themselves, and I've never heard any of them say anything like that. And, and now that I think about it, that's really true. That, that, that is what you are doing. So it's, um, yeah, it's easier now a year later, uh, but I still catch myself in certain situations, do I say that because of what somebody might perceive about that? And getting up to go to work every morning because it's something about love versus it's about filling out a bunch of um, documents probably um, affects your quality of life as well. Oh, completely. Being here 10 <laughs> at night doing documents, it, having that purpose changes everything. Beautiful. That's great. Yeah, that's great. Are there any, um, any others that um, have questions or comments? I, I'm uh, one of the things I like to do in this call is ask if uh, you've learned something that you can apply in the coming week or if uh, you've had an insight that will uh, affect your week. So if anyone has one of those, press 1 and we'll call on you. There are people who always talk that are here on the line because we see you, but they're not talking. You know who you are. <laughs> so um, that that question of purpose one one of the um, one of the things that I've been we're doing with lawyers is actually inquiring into what is the purpose of the legal system and what is our personal purpose and where do those intersect and uh, and I find that 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 seems like a a small question in terms of it's not it's not a lot of um, words and we don't you know we don't have to explain a lot about what purpose is people immediately understand that and they jump in and um, and it and it can shift everything and if if the purpose of um, of being a trial lawyer is to beat people up you have a much different uh, experience and the people around you have a different experience than if it's to seek truth right we have um, Deborah and also Linda with their hands up. Shall we start with Deborah? Sure. Hi, Deborah. Hello there. Um, I just wanted to hear a little bit more from Sean, and and I I didn't quite catch the exact phrase that he likes to use when he talks about love in his practice, and I I would like to hear him uh, repeat that, and and I. Would love to he love to hear more about attorneys uh, using the concept of love and caring in their practice and in their um, advertisement, publication, promotion of their practice. If there are anyone else on the on the call that can talk about that. Am I am I on? Uh, Yes, yeah, Sean, go ahead. Oh, okay. Um, so uh, the purpose of Mason Law Group, which is my firm, is to help our clients express love for the people that are most important to them. And then we happen to do that, estate planning, trust administration, probate, elder law, and divorce mediation. And if you go to my website, I mean, I have that right on the, the front page of my website. Um, and every time... When somebody asks me what I do, sometimes I, I chicken out and just say I'm an estate planning attorney and all that. But more so these days, uh, because I've been practicing saying that, I will lead with, you know, I'm Sean Mason with Mason Law Group, and the purpose of Mason Law Group is to, and then I say to help our clients express love for the people that are most important to them. That's definitely... Um, a very enrolling way of talking about it, Sean. Yeah, and it took, it took a while to get to that point. I mean, I, 
You know, I had some iterations of it, but it probably took me a good year to get to the point where I was able to say it as kind of clearly and succinctly and authentically as uh, as I do now. I mean, you're probably not chickening out the other. You're probably just knowing the difference between who's ready to hear it like that and who isn't. You know. Yeah, That's but I great. do. I, I at some point, it's like I I want the people who aren't ready to hear it to hear about it because I'm I'm clear that there are going to be some people that are not going to be interested in working with me because they want you know somebody who's much more hard nosed and and uh, you know practices in, in that regard. Um, and um, I, think, I think people are ready to hear it, and even from attorneys. Um, at least that's what I, I'm finding, in Santa Barbara anyway. <laughs> that's great. Uh, Linda? Am I audible? Be, you're audible. It's good to hear you. <laughs> I was being really quiet. I was going to be good this time. Um, so, yes. In answer to Deborah's question, I was actually in line to say thank you, Sean, and thanks for speaking up. I too have the love word in my um, presentation to clients. Um, in every engagement letter I send out to a potential client, I send a statement of my vision, mission, and values. And the first sentence of my vision statement is, I envision a world where the power of love has replaced the love of power, uh, which is a quote from Gladstone and eventually then Jimi Hendrix as well. But uh, that's how I introduce it because what I work with is transactional law, uh, helping people create private systems for, uh, you know, well, that's what a contract is. It's your private legal system um, and put in place with a private justice system. And it's about the use of, of power and a different understanding of power, which was actually the other reason that I held up my hand when we talked earlier about systems, public or private, and we talked about changing the system from within and all of those kinds of things. I began to think about, I do work within the system and it's important to me to remain a lawyer and try to function differently within the system. And it has to do with changing my understanding of power, which changes the array of choices available to everyone that I encounter as a professional. Um, and then the choice of whether that's within a public system or these private arbitration type systems or whether we set up public or private, seems to me the question of a public or a private system is more about who we perceive as owning the power in those systems. and. For me, regardless of where you are, public or private, being clear about what you mean and what your source of power is and how you understand power in human relationships is going to affect how you uh, impact the system, change the system. And for me, the power is love. I think I'm finished. That says it all. Yeah, that's, that's great. Um, Deborah, is your hand back up, um, or is it still um, is it left up from before? Uh, Kim, I believe Gretchen is next, and then we also have Dorothy, who would like to ask a question. So, okay. Go ahead, I just wanted to make Gretchen. sure. That, okay. Am I on? You're on. Um, this is Gretchen, and um, my my question slash comment um, goes back to something that Jeff had said in response to Sean about um, it's imp 
what I what I heard was that it's important to be authentic, but it's also important to recognize the people that are resonating with the message. Um, and that that it's kind of an answer to your question, Kim, about how are we going to use this this week. Kim, as you know, I keep waffling on what my tagline is for my business because I feel in my heart that it's soul recovery for lawyers. But when I put that out there, I always feel like I'm being condescending to people that might not be ready to hear that yet. Right. So my action for this week is to, is, to, is to authentically put that out there and recognize the people that are ready to hear it. So thank you. Nice. What was her tagline? Recovery for lawyers? Soul recovery. Soul recovery. Uh, yeah, I can see them getting upset and saying, my soul's in perfectly fine form as it is. I wonder about soul regeneration, maybe. As so many lawyers tell me they feel like law school sold their soul or they lost their soul. And and yet there may be um, some reaction to someone else telling them that. It's it's interesting. I, I like soul recovery for lawyers from the conversations I've had. It'll be interesting to see how that goes. Um, I, I believe Dorothy, um, shall we go ahead and open it up for you, Dorothy? Yeah, can you hear me? Can you hear me? Yeah. Yep. Oh, okay. Yeah, I've been pressing the one button for the last half hour, and I'm really in an upset because I thought my phone wasn't working. Uh, or else you guys were just not calling on me. But um, I'm kind of stuck in an upset, actually. Um, from a statement that somebody made about the legal system, and the trial, well, I'm not sure exactly what the words were that were said. I'm looking to see what it was that I got triggered, but I, I think the um, the distinction that I'm grappling with is who we say that other people are that are involved in the legal system, and if we say that people really have good intentions, and if we do mediation and Respect people and act loving and and compassionate. Then it'll all work out. But it doesn't look that way to me. It looks to me like there's predatory people that don't want any accountability. And I'm not talking about criminals in the criminal law system so much because I tend to see them as victims also. Although a lot of them are predatory or, or have severe psychiatric problems and don't have the emotional components that that, that other people have. But um, I think that unchecked power, I'm not sure exactly even how to say this. I, I just think there needs to be a place in the legal system, and the legal system is the only place and it has to be protected, where there can be fact-finding to reveal what happened and to have accountability for it. And I'm, really, I'm thinking about tort law. And there's a big move to uh, emasculate, for lack of a better word, uh, tort law and the practice of tort law. And in the meantime, we have these big corporate um, marauders that are just grabbing up all that they can and polluting air and water and landscape and hybridizing seeds and doing all kinds of deeds and taking over Congress. And um, I think that there has to be a functioning um, component of our culture that can combat that. So, and then if you think of that, about that in terms of the warrior paradigm, I'm, I'm very clear in that when I put on my law practice wardrobe that I'm, I'm dressing as a warrior. And that when I practice politics, which I do a lot, that, um, that we're warriors that are protecting something very precious in the legal system, <coughs> excuse me, is, the, is maybe the only effective mechanism for doing that. So all this talk about alternative dispute resolution and arbitration and those kinds of things, they can really take the teeth out of the ability to be able to be powerful and effective. And I am a mediator, by the way. I just I, Somehow that whole conversation got triggered, partly because of my indignation about what I read about the latest corporate um, schemes to hybridize seeds and take them so that 
farmers in India can't replant their crops and stuff like that. There's just so many things in our culture right now to be indignant about. And I don't want to see the tools that lawyers have be taken away from them, because that's one of the things that keeps our culture um, with mechanisms for accountability. I'm having trouble saying all this, so I don't I don't know if I'm saying it well or not. I I think I think you um you said it well enough, Dorothy. I mean that that was what I was referring to when I said that I think there are people who don't want to be held accountable and that's one of the purposes of the court system that I think will always be around or at least for a much, much longer time, maybe just twenty thousand years. <laughs> I don't like the twenty thousand years timeline, Jeff. But oh, <laughs> I didn't. I didn't. I didn't. I didn't think you would. <laughs> <laughs> well, and 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 Jeff, you talked about that um, you're having to spend time in court to um, to in your um, in your business to have people um, actually pay you, which I think is another example of sometimes people uh, need a little help in being accountable. Absolutely. And getting sorted out. Absolutely. Sorted out I, thank God, I thank God for the court system. Absolutely. I, otherwise, I wouldn't have any way to get paid in that business in certain situations. Yeah. Yeah. And I and I continue to think that uh, when a mother and father are having uh, issues with their children, that that's probably not the best tool to use, unless um, unless it's the last resort. You mean to use the court system? Use the court system. Yeah, but in my case, I mean, it's uh, my my esoteric uh, intentions or considerations are of absolutely no use to me in trying to get paid on the grounded level for work that's been done that someone doesn't want to pay for. I mean, it this very practical, grounded, real life, no nonsense system is absolutely the only approach that I can take. I try everything else, including soft touching, soft talking, all kinds of heartfelt everything, you know, spiritual inquiry, it, it it just doesn't work sometimes. So I'm I'm thankful for the the system. I mean, for me it's about trying to hold the vision, to hold both things at the same time, which is, you know, the 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 system as we need it that really is and I think Dorothy, I think it was Dorothy that talked to just in terms of um, accountability and really having a structure in place that recognizes that many of us are not moving from integrity at this stage of development. And so we have to deal with that, and yet at the same time holding out for the possibility and working towards the possibility that a system develops that reflects a more accountable populace, you know, people who have reached a stage where they genuinely take responsibility. You know. yeah. Well, and I, I, I think that's great because I, I think um, what's common to all of the calls that we've had so far and, and a lot of the work that I see in the world is we are standing on a bridge, and Sharif Abdullah last week said we're standing on a bridge that we're building as we go. Yeah, that feels really right. And we have to ascend with both feet on the ground. I think that's really the most important vision for me. It's like, you know, I can move higher and higher in my way of looking at the world and get out of the localized lens, but I've got to stay solidly right here in order to actually create sustainable change. Otherwise, it's just uh, visions of possibility that, that don't land anywhere. So that's that's great. I, we're, we're coming up on um, the end of the hour, and I want to thank you, Jeff, uh, for uh, coming in and being the catalyst for a wonderful conversation and sharing about your path. And thank and you. I love being exposed to the kind of lawyers that I didn't encounter 20 years ago. It's <laughs> a pretty wonderful group, I have to say. <laughs> and um, and next uh, next week we're actually off. I will be on an airplane at the time of our usual call. And um, the week after on the 19th, we're actually going to have a different kind of guest and that um, Peggy Hora has um, has taken on working inside the legal system. And uh, as a judge, uh, she's uh, one of the leaders in the problem-solving court movement. She's had the best job I know of, which is she was actually paid to be a thinker in residence. Uh, in Australia, and um, and she's going to be coming in and and talking with us on the 19th at 8 uh, Pacific, 11 on the 19th. So, thank you everybody for your participation and um, your, your holding space. And Jeff, uh, I look forward to hearing more from you on Facebook. 
Got it. Thanks, Kim. All right. All right. Take care. Thank you, everyone. Have a great day. And just as a quick note, soulshaping.com is where you can find out more about Jeff and his work. Thanks. You are currently the only person in this conference.